Greetings, welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us today to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome guests and members of CBC. Uh, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's hear God's word together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in the midst of life's uncertainties and confusion, your steadfast love is a rock to us, a refuge to us. Thank you, Lord, that your covenant faithfulness is always certain, always sure, even when so much in our lives is uncertain. Father, we hope in you and confess that you are our refuge. You are our rock. And so we confess this morning that we will not be shaken, whatever happens, because of your covenant faithfulness, your steadfast love. Father, even as we rejoice and give thanks to you, for your protection of us. Father, we also come to you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, confessing our desire to be the people that you would have us to be, Lord. You have called us to be a community set apart, a holy community, your church, witnessing to your character in this lost world. And we do that, Lord, through our unity, Lord. And so we ask this morning that you would be pleased to use the word this morning to produce an ever-deepening love for one another, a greater humility, gentleness, and patience in our midst that we might live harmoniously with one another and know the unity that you've called us to, that your spirit secures, Lord. Uh, use the word that is proclaimed this morning as a means to that end, we ask. Amen. So the general rule in life is that without effort, things fall apart. If you don't uh, go out to your backyard occasionally intend to it, uh, the grass will grow, the weeds will sprout, uh, you know, wild vegetation will grow everywhere. Uh, for your backyard to look the way that you want it to, constant effort is required. Uh, if you want uh, your house to look the way that it should look, you have to paint it every so often, otherwise the color begins to fade. If you want to remain physically strong, you've got to exercise, you've got to not eat whatever you want to because we know uh, that our bodily strength needs to be maintained, our physical vitality needs to be maintained, or it will, we don't just drift into health, do we? Uh, it needs to be worked at. Well, the same thing holds true when it comes to relationships with others. Healthy, harmonious relationships with others don't just happen. They need to be cultivated. They need to be worked at. The unity in the church doesn't just happen. Like, we're not going to find ourselves as God's people in a local church just drifting towards unity and love and humility. How did we get here? I don't know, but here we are. No, unity, harmonious relationships, 
uh, love, these things need to be cultivated. Unity needs to be worked at. And that's a, the very heart of what the Apostle Paul has to say to us this morning. Uh, unity matters to God. We saw in chapter 3, verse 10, that the unity of the church, this unity of Jew and Gentile, is how God displays his glory to the heavenlies and to the world. That's how he displays his wisdom. Unity matters to God, and therefore it should be pursued by God's people. We'll note three things in this passage this morning. One, live according to your calling. Live according to your calling. Two, pursue unity. Pursue unity. And three, remember what unites you to other believers. Something we're, pr we're prone to forget. Remember what unites you to other believers. So as I mentioned last week, we are at a transition point in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul does here in Ephesians what he often does in other letters. He uh, begins with this grand survey of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. He shows us the dimensions of the goodness of God and God's, um, the hope that we have, the forgiveness of our sins. He takes several chapters to, to give us this survey of God's mercies. And then in the second half of the letter, he shows us what it means to live in light of that. First, we consider what God has done for us, the flow of thought here. And then we need to consider the implications that the work of Jesus for us has for how we live. Paul is now going to show us the right way we should live in light of the work of Jesus. That's, this is the transition point here. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Typically in Paul's writings, when he speaks about God calling people, that act is a divine summons into a relationship with himself. And that call is more than a simple invitation. That call is effective. When God calls, as that Paul uses that word, it is an undeserved act of goodness on God's part that brings you into fellowship with himself. But this act of calling has a purpose. We're not just called, we are called to. And the purpose of God's calling, what he has called us to, is described in great detail in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians. We're called to a relationship with our Father in heaven. At the high price of our Lord's life, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are called into fellowship with God. We are called to enjoy the friendship of God and call him our Father in heaven, knowing that our sins have been washed away through Jesus. We're called to a relationship with God. We're called, Ephesians 1.18, to hope. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have a glorious future. The king is coming back. His reign will be established over all things, and it will be glorious to participate in that future kingdom. You have a future hope. Uh, you've been called from death to life, chapter 2. God has summoned you from spiritual death and rebellion into a relationship with himself, but also spiritual life. God has called you to uh, not just a relationship with himself, but also to be among his people, to be part of the church. We saw that in chapter 2. You have been called to belong to the people of God. So in light of all of that, Paul says, as you consider all that God has done for you through Jesus, walk appropriately. But notice the logic. It's not just walk. This is kind of where we want to go. Okay, what do I, what do I need to do? It's not just walk. It's as you consider everything that God has done for you, as you bask in the goodness of God, you will understand what the appropriate response should be. For example, 
If you understand that you've been called to hope, that you've got this bright future, then it's never appropriate for you, is it, to be without hope, to, be, to completely despair. If God has procured this hope for you through His Son, Jesus, then the appropriate way to walk in, in light of that calling to hope is to be cheerful even in the worst moments as you look to what God has for you in the future. So what we need to recognize as we make this transition is that a life of obedience and faithfulness is fueled by the work of God. We seek to obey as we look back to everything that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And as we see his mercy and grace, it becomes clearer and clearer how we ought to walk. And furthermore, his grace motivates our obedience. Think of the gospel or the good news about Jesus like, like the wind in our sails that propels the ship forward. God's mercy in Jesus motivates us to obey. And think of the gospel also like the, the wheel of the ship that directs it where it should go. The gospel helps us to see how we ought to walk in fellowship with Jesus. Some time ago, uh, never mind how long, uh, God brought a particularly difficult individual in my path. This happens to all of us from time to time. Uh, you don't know the person, so don't try to speculate. I know some of you are trying to identify this difficult person. You don't know him. Be at ease. Um, uniquely difficult, uh, domineering, draining individual, a bit of a bully. And so I did what naturally we're all supposed to do in this situation. I held him politely at arm's length. Uh, I try to manage the, the relationship. I was civil and courteous, but always try to keep him right here. Uh, he's just difficult. Well, one, one day I was doing my uh, devotions in the morning. I was praying to the Lord. I was reading something. And God brought to, to my mind and heart the, the, the glorious fact that when I was a rebel and a sinner, God loved me. When there was nothing in me to love, Nothing attractive, God loved me. When I was draining and difficult, and to some extent still am, um, but when I was draining and difficult, God loved me. And he opened his arms and sent his son for me. That's how God loved me. And I, and I re received that and was encouraged by that. Then the Holy Spirit connected the dots for me. Wait a minute. If that's how I've been loved by God, then I have a responsibility to this person. I have a responsibility not simply to hold them at arm's length, but to open my arms and love them and be willing to be drained by them for the sake of loving them well. Uh, notice how two things happened. One, in recognizing what God had done for me, my desire to love this person increased. Notice how I was strengthened to love by more deeply understanding what God had done for me. The gospel energizes. But also, too, notice how my moral responsibilities to this person became clearer when I understood what God had done for me. I'm called to reflect the character of my Father in heaven. And that means that I need to love difficult people, not just half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. So as we walk with the Lord, we need to not just focus on what do I need to do, as important as that is, but we need to be constantly appropriating the gospel. What has God done for me in Jesus Christ? Our hearts need to be continuously softened by that reality, and our walk, our lifestyle, needs to be continually directed by that reality. We never get to a point in our walk with Jesus where we get beyond the gospel. 
Paul's ethical instructions to the Ephesians in these chapters is grounded in everything that he said in the first couple of chapters. This is what motivates and guides what he's about to say. So walk in accordance with your calling. Second thing, walk, pursue unity. The question inevitably after we read verse 1 is, what does it mean to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling? What does that look like practically? Well, Paul tells us, walk with all humility and gentleness and patience. These are the character qualities and attitudes that we need if we are going to live in unity with one another. If you have a bunch of prideful people who are competing with with each other, you can't have a great community. You can't have unity. Unity in the body, in the church, presupposes on the part of all a humility and gentleness and patience. So let's look at these qualities in turn. Humility. Humility before God, humility understood at the vertical level, is understanding that everything that you are and have, all of your gifts and all of your successes in life, originate not finally with you, but with God. He is the source of your successes. He is the source of your gifting. Everything you have, you have received. And so he gets the glory. The opposite of that is King Herod in Acts chapter 12. King Herod is giving this magnificent oration, this speech to adoring crowds. And they start chanting, this is not a man, this is a God. This is not a man, this is a God. And instead of humbling himself and giving God the glory... Not to us, not to us, but to you be the glory. Instead of doing that, he receives this praise and he is struck down by the angel of the Lord. Humility means recognizing that whatever we have, we have as a gift from God. But it also means we we have humility when we understand what we are before God. We were once rebels far from God and Quite apart from anything that we deserved, he in love took the initiative to wash us at the high cost of his son's life and bring us back into fellowship with himself. How can you be proud when you're a sinner saved by grace? We walk in humility when we understand what we are apart from Jesus and what God has done for us. That's humility at the vertical level. At the horizontal level, humility, if I can put it this way, some author puts it this way, humility is a taste for the other. A joy in other selves. Humility means that we see value when we look at other people, and we delight in that value. Humility means that we give weight to other people's perspectives. When they say something, we listen because what they say matters. To be humble means you're you're not intimidated by other people who are even more gifted than you are. You're thankful. You appreciate their gifting. To be humble is to value others. Uh, to find it easy to like people. It's easy to spot things that you like about others. It's easy to see the strengths in others. Pride, on the other hand, is to be swollen with a sense of self-importance such that you can't readily see any good in anybody else but yourself. You see your strengths, you're magnificent in your own eyes, and you habitually critique others. You trash others. You find very little to like and to admire in other people. You're always competing for the spotlight with others. And again, if that's your attitude, you can see how it would make community and unity very difficult. But pride is not simply thinking too highly of yourself, it's also thinking too much about yourself. David Wells makes this observation. Uh, People who are self-absorbed are pride. 
How do I feel? Am I happy? What do I want? Do people like me? What do other people think of me? Me, me, me. That kind of suffocating self-involvement is an expression of pride. It's to live in the straight jacket of the self. The humble person, on the other hand, it's not so much that they think badly of themselves, oh, I'm such a terrible person because I'm humble, right? The humble person doesn't think about themselves at all. The humble per, uh, person walks in that blissful self-forgetfulness. You know those moments in life, right? Where for a moment you forget what people think about you or what you think about yourself, and you are lost in that moment. You are lost in your work, you are lost in a conversation, a TV show, and you forget about the self for a moment, and it's bliss, it's relief. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, a flawed but helpful book. Some chapters are better than others, but he's got a chapter there that I think is absolutely magnificent in its treatment of pride. He calls it the great sin, and rightly so. Uh, There he talks about pride and humility. It's very insightful. And uh, here's what he says. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Self-forgetfulness. Forgetting about ourselves, delighting in God, delighting in others. Now, what are some ways of examining the degree of pride in our own hearts? I'm going to put out some diagnostic questions here. But let me start with, if you think you have no pride then you're probably struggling more than most people. Everybody struggles with pride. And if you don't even realize it, recognize that pride is a big deal. Pride is the the root under so many other sins, an overinflated sense of your own uh, greatness. So first of all, ask yourself, do you recognize that you're you're a prideful person? The the desire to be first, the desire is to put others behind you. you. Do you even recognize that about yourself? It's a good place to start. Another question. How do you respond when someone disagrees with your opinion? Does it tend to eat you up, or can you accept it? What happens when someone rejects your suggestion? It's often a good indicator. You put forth an idea, it's not accepted. How do you respond? A humble person is able not to take himself too seriously, able even to laugh at himself, and when his idea or proposal is rejected, it's not the end of the world. I don't remember where I, somewhere in Lewis, I know I read this, I don't remember the, and he's talking about this other story which I can't quite remember. But the gist of it, memory serves, is uh, there was this distinguished churchman and theologian who spent his life developing some kind of theological theory, I think about angels, and he put all of this blood, sweat, and tears into developing this this concept. Anyway, this theologian dies uh, and he discovers on the other side that all, everything about his theory is completely wrong. And he responds uh, by bursting out with laughter. Uh, he laughs at how silly he had been. To me, that's humility. If you can do that, if you can laugh at how silly you have been, at so, how silly your ideas are, if you cannot take yourself too seriously, that's a good sign. Are you able to laugh at yourself, or do you take yourself very seriously? When you're proven wrong, does it eat you up, or can you live with yourself? Another question. 
How do you respond when someone disagrees? Oh, uh, sorry, different question. Are you a good listener? When someone speaks to you, do you listen carefully or wait to express your thoughts? Like, do you value what other people have to say? Or do you just value what you have to say, and so you're just waiting to pounce in the conversation, unload all the brilliant things that you have to say? And finally, do you characteristically find fault with others or find things to praise about others? Do you ever actually compliment others? Do you ever praise others for something they've done well? Are you a critical person? You always see this person's failing here, this person's failing here. Or are you characteristically a person who can see good in others and praise it? What sort of person are you? And it might be helpful to ask other people. Get their input. You might th we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we really are and the perspective of others, not least spouses, children, coworkers, super helpful. Humility. I stress humility because that death to the desire to be first is absolutely crucial to the unity of the church. We are proud. We need to know it. We need to kill it. We need to put on humility. Second quality, though, gentleness. Gentleness. The, the idea here is that you desire to protect people from undue pain. When do, they do something that's provoking and irritating, you don't lash out and hit. Uh, this quality is expressed in a willingness to defer to others, not standing on your rights. You might, you might be completely in the right. You might have a claim to something, but out of a desire to preserve unity, out of a desire to protect relationships, you can let go of things that are your due for the sake of higher priorities like unity and like relationships. A good example of this in scripture is the patriarch Abraham, Genesis 13. Uh, there's a moment where Abraham and his um, nephew Lot, uh, their flocks become so big that they can't inhabit the same land or the same space. And they have to part ways. Now Abraham is the leader of the clan, He's Lot's uncle. He's the one who has received the promises from the Lord. He has every right to determine uh, first which land he will prefer to live on. He has the right to say, I'm going to go here, you go there. Instead, what Abraham does is he says, Lot, you decide. I'm going to waive my right to determine where I will live, and I will let you decide. If you go this way, I'll go the other way. That's a mark of a noble character, a mature character. It's not just about what is owed to me and what is coming to me. I can see things beyond my rights, things like the, the value of relationships, and I can prioritize those over what I think I deserve. Gentleness is super necessary uh, in marriage, is it not? This is a perennial temptation. It's your turn to watch the kids standing on your rights. That may be true, but what about deferring, letting go of your rights from time to time for the sake of the relationship for the sake of the harmonious operating uh, of the family. Willingness to defer. Willingness to put relationship above your rights. Gentleness. Third, patience. This is the quality you need on Sunday morning when you're the first person in the car and you're waiting for the rest of the household to trickle into the car uh, next to you. Uh, this, this is what you need, right? We need patience whenever somebody's weakness Folly or sin disrupts what we want, gets in the way of what we want. Uh, it's, it's a refusal to be vindictive, to hit back. Patience recognizes that growth takes time and space. People need time and they need space to grow up. Isn't that how God treats us? He's very patient with us. 
waits for us to mature, to figure things out, things that maybe we should have learned more quickly and earlier in life. He's patient in helping us to learn those things. That's the attitude that we should exhibit towards others. When their weaknesses and folly get in our way, we go, okay, character growth takes time. I might correct, I might encourage, but I'm gonna give this person the the room that they need to grow. I'm gonna come alongside of them. Uh, And we need patience because let's face it, people are difficult. Paul goes on to qualify patience by saying um, that we ought to bear with one another in love, or we could translate it, put up with one another in love. We need to put up with one another, with one another not hit back vindictively, uh, because maybe you're not difficult, but certainly the, the people around you are difficult, right? Uh, the church is comprised of challenging people, and so we need to learn how to overlook those offenses and flaws and move forward together. Certainly we need patience because we're sinners and we sin against each other. So quite obviously there's a need for patience for that reason. Somebody sins against you, you're called by Jesus to forgive them as you've been forgiven and move forward. Uh, but even beyond that, like we need patience because of temperamental differences. Like certain temperaments ru- tend to rub each other the wrong way. If you're like an introvert, you know, and also not a morning person, and you show up on Sunday morning and you are interacting with an enthusiastic extrovert, grace and patience might be necessary on both sides. Not because of sin, but just differences in how you're wired. Like certain people, certain temperaments are naturally going to rub you the, the wrong way. Others are going to be more attractive to you. Part of the reason we need patience with each other in the body of Christ is just these differences that are not inherently sinful. They're just there, and we need to learn how to work through them and just give people space, and it's okay that they are how they are. Um... There are character flaws that are annoying. So people talk too much. They laugh too loud. Uh, keep in mind you have those as well, and people put up with you, and they're, you know, put up with their character defects. Wait as God changes them. Uh, cultural differences are a reason for being patient. Right? We have Germans in our congregation when it comes to time, very punctual. Uh, we have Romanians, maybe a little more Latin in their approach to time. It can be annoying. And again, not because of any sin, but just because of different expectations about what's appropriate and you know, the punctuality and the place of punctuality in life. And the response that we need, according to Paul, is this, just for, be forbearing. Put the relationship, put the unity of the church above these petty irritations. And we can do this as we, as he points out, uh, are patient in love. Bear with one another in love. So the the kind of patience he has in view here is not like a grit your teeth and try hard to be patient sort of patience. It's like I love this person for all of their flaws, and I want them to do well. And when there is that mutual love, we can be forbearing. So be patient. All of these character qualities, humility, gentleness, and patience are necessary if the body is to be unified. And this is the burden, the heart of Paul's concern. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, first of all, that the unity exists before we try to maintain it. This is a unity. There's a spiritual unity of God's people that is established through the Holy Spirit. Whether we recognize it or not, God the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ and also spiritually connects us to one another. That spiritual unity is already there. It has already been established through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What we are called to do in the church is realize outwardly and objectively in ordinary life that spiritual unity. We ought to live in a way that reflects that. Do you recognize that one of your basic callings as a Christian is to promote the unity of the church? 
Sometimes we don't even realize that's a, that's a duty that we have as Christians. We, we tend to be maybe very individualistic. I know I need to love others, follow Jesus. But you understand that God has called you to be an instrument by which the unity of the church is preserved. You are called to that. All of us are called to that. When we say something to others in the church, the attitudes that we have, the actions that we take, all of these things need to be continually assessed in terms of, am I hurting or helping the unity of the body in the way that I'm conducting myself? Jesus Christ calls us in a variety of ways to promote the unity of the church. Now, there's probably a million ways in which this happens practically. Let me give you a few key ones, though. We maintain the unity of the church when we are quick to forgive others of their offenses against us. When we forgive them. And then when we wrong others, we are quick to apologize and say, brother, I'm sorry. That was very rude of me to say that or very disrespectful of me. But we pursue each other. Sometimes people aren't aware that they've sinned against you. So sometimes you have to do the hard work of pursuing them and saying, hey, when you said this, it was very disrespectful. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You know, let, let's, let's work through this. Uh, what we tend to do, though, is, okay, this person has wounded me. I don't like them. So I'm going to sit on the opposite side of the sanctuary. I'm going to systematically avoid them. There's enough people that I can... We, we, our paths don't have to cross. We have two services. I'll just go to the opposite one. Uh, the one that they don't intend. Right? That's disunity. You, we don't have the right not to work on our relationships with one another. We have to pursue one another. And this is a crucial aspect of unity. Two, how we handle disagreements that we don't like, or I'm sorry, not disagreements, decisions that we don't like, that the church makes, is a crucial part of maintaining the unity. It's like a million decisions that need to be made by the leadership of the church. Many of them probably won't like or will rub you the wrong way. And you have to have a sense of proportion. Are there certain things that where you absolutely should challenge everything? So if, the, if the leadership says we, don't, we no longer believe in the Trinity... It's not even a church anymore. Feel free. Uh, challenge away. But obviously, most decisions that are made are not at that level. What curriculum will we use? When will we meet? Things like this. It may not be the way that you would do it, but out of respect for the unity of the church, accept it. Have a sense of proportion. Is this really something I need to make a big deal out of? Third thing, praise other members of the church to members of the church. Speak well of people. One of the best ways to foster unity is to model humility and talk about the strengths and character qualities that people have. Not gossip, which is to trash people in the eyes of other members. Look at that person. Look at, have you noticed uh, what they wore, what they said? Uh, we disrupt the unity of the church through slander and gossip. Uh, undoubtedly, there are many other ways as well. But the point here, the, po the point that Paul wants us to see is that the unity of the church matters to God. Ephesians 3.10, this is how he makes himself known to the world, and therefore we ought to be eager to protect this valuable thing, the harmony of our relationships together. And it's a serious sin in the sight of God to be an agent of disrupting the unity of the church. Finally, how do we do this? So how can, okay, we need to pursue unity. How, what's the motivation? What's the reason we should pursue unity? Verses four through six. Paul gives us the reason. This is the foundation for unity. This, we need to remember that we have these things in common. Number one, there is one body. This is just a way of saying that there is only one church of Jesus Christ to which we are connected through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, unfortunately and unhappily, it happens that uh, people get frustrated with relationships to people in their local church. There's sin, and sometimes just in a fallen world, people leave for maybe it becomes necessary. But understand that even if you leave your local church, 
you're still part of the same church as those people you've left. You're still in the same body. You're still in the same people. You, in a profound sense, you can't ever leave the church. You can't ever separate from those people who are also in the church. They're your brothers and sisters. Do you recognize that? Whether you are physically worshiping with this group of people on Sunday, week after week, doesn't change the fact that you're still part of the people of God with them. Do you recognize that? There is finally and fundamentally only one church that we belong to. One body. There is one spirit. There aren't multiple Holy Spirits. Uh, there, there is one person, God the Holy Spirit, that we all partake in. It is by the Spirit that we are united to Jesus, and it's by the Spirit that we are united to one another. We're part of a spiritual organism. I think we occasionally gl get glimpses of this. Maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you are burdened and troubled and nobody knows what's going on? Something's weighing on your heart. Your spouse knows, but nobody else. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody but Jesus, right? One of those seasons. You're, you're burdened. Nobody, nobody's aware. And then you have a brother or sister text you, call you, or maybe approach you on a Sunday and say, hey, I don't know why, but I felt a unique burden to pray for you this week. And they don't, from a human standpoint, they have no idea what's going on. But the Holy Spirit who unites you to this person is stirring up their heart to pray for you. Is putting it on their heart to petition God on your behalf. How did this person know that they needed to pray for you? Because there's a spiritual bond between us. They may not know the details of the challenges that you face, but because you partake of one spirit, you're part of one spiritual organism. The bonds that unite us might be invisible, but they are real bonds, and it's the bond of the Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, how many destinies do the people of God have to look forward to? One. You notice the repetition of one here. It's not like this difficult person that you're finding it so difficult to love is going to end up somewhere else in the world to come. You're going to be together forever. So figure out how to get along in the present, right? The people we part ways with, the, the, the relationships that challenge us, these people are not going to a different place. They don't have a different destiny from you. We're going to end up together forever, okay? That means we need to start figuring out how to love each other and live in community in the present. We have one hope, one Lord, not multiple lords, Understand that just as you desire from the heart to obey Jesus and walk in fellowship with him, your brothers and sisters do as well. One faith. Faith here refers to the teaching, to the doctrine that we share as believers. Sometimes we get so hung up on, on maybe trifling doctrinal issues, we get so focused on what separates, that we forget the massive common ground that we have in common. Even when it comes to maybe some theological or biblical disagreement, we need to have a sense of proportion Consider the faith that we hold in common. One baptism, baptism is an initiation right into the church. We have shared in one baptism in the name of the triune God. And finally, we have one Father, one God and Father of all. Now, if God is your Father, then what does that imply about your relationship with your brothers and sisters? They are brothers and sisters, right? If God is Father to you, but also to them, then that means that you need to view 
God's people as your family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, If we're going to be the kind of people that Paul is describing here, a people who are zealous for unity, we have to strongly emphasize these things that we have in common. Our temptation is to take the magnifying glass and look at the thing that separates us from our brother and sister. But what we need to do is take a step back and go, wait a minute. This person has the same destiny as I do, the same Lord as I do, and belongs to the same people as I do. Surely that should have more weight than these trifles in relation to these things. If we want to be a people committed to unity, we have to regularly remind one another all that we have in common. We might not have the same interests, the same background, but we have Jesus in common, and that's enough. That's glorious common ground. That's common ground that is a firm foundation for unity in the church. So brothers and sisters, as we recognize that unity that we have in Jesus Christ, that we are one people with one God, with one destiny, let us be forbearing with one another. Let us not make a mountain out of molehills. Let us be quick to forgive and let us pursue the unity that God would have us pursue. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that our lives frequently lack, conspicuously lack, the humility, patience, and gentleness to which you call us. Uh, But we are undeterred because we believe the power of the Spirit to change us is greater than our character defects. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work, that you would change us, that you would cause us to reflect your beautiful character. Let CBC, Lord, as we've prayed and continue to pray, be marked by a profound commitment to you, and a profound commitment to the unity, Father, that you desire to see in our midst. Let us, people, let us be people who value relationship over our petty uh, preferences. Amen.